Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Norma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, New Trends in Cancer Survivorship. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And it really is because of that collaboration and all of your interest in the program today that we have such a large number of participants. We have over 553 participants on the call today. You come from all over the United States, so that means from urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have participants from Austria, Canada, Ireland, India, Norway, Sweden, and Taiwan. So a bit of a global call indeed as well. And... Um, Today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Pharmacyclics, Inc., and Janssen Biotech, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Deborah Mayer. Dr. Mayer is Interim Director of NCI's Office of Cancer Survivorship, Division of Cancer Control and Population Sciences, the National Cancer Institute. She's also Francis Hills Fox Distinguished Professor, School of Nursing, Director, Cancer Survivorship, UNC Weinberger Comprehensive Cancer Center, the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Dr. Mayer is going to be addressing an overview and definition of cancer survivorship, including new trends, living with uncertainty, and managing post-treatment side effects, light effects. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Mayer. Thank you very much, and thank you for all of you who are listening to this um, important podcast. We um, have used the word survivorship now for many decades, and in many ways it's a very broad topic, And, and but the definition hasn't really been updated in a long time since it was first coined by Dr. Fitzhugh Mullen, and, but how people interpret the definition has changed over time. Basically, anybody who's been diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime is considered a cancer survivor. It is not meant to be a label. It's not something that people have to call themselves a survivor if they don't want to. Um, But it's meant to identify the fact that um, we need to focus on the people who have cancer beyond just treating them for their cancer. And so it's meant to sort of broaden the horizon when we see people and address their needs is to think beyond the immediate getting their treatment for their cancer. Um, and and so different countries have adopted different language. Some have um, called it living with, through, and beyond cancer. We say it's from the time of diagnosis um, for the person's rest of their life. But we also know there's many types of uh, survivor. There are those who have been diagnosed and treated and are cured of their cancer and may do fine for the rest of their life. There are those who have been diagnosed with cancer, been treated, but may have some residual problems from the treatment itself. There are those who may uh, have been diagnosed and then the cancer comes back or that they live to live have another cancer. But the bottom line is it's somebody who's been diagnosed with cancer and they may have active disease, they may be having no evidence of disease, but it's not meant for an individual to label themselves that way unless they want to, and they can call themselves whatever they want. Um, I myself have joined the club nobody wants to belong to over 10 years ago, yet I don't necessarily call myself a survivor. I had cancer and I deal with that, but again, it's, it's the field of research and of care that we deliver more than any labels for an individual to have. Having had cancer, though, or having cancer, however you want to label it, means that your awareness of um, yourself as a mortal human being is um, made very aware around the uncertainty of what all this means for you and your future. Most of us, when we get up in the morning without a cancer diagnosis, um, believe 
you know, our day is going to be fine and we don't think a whole lot about it. Having cancer makes us much more aware and sensitive about the fact of you can't always count on your health or what's going to happen tomorrow or what have you, and that living with uncertainty can be a real challenge after a diagnosis of cancer because nobody's going to be able to guarantee a person that they are cured or that they will live 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And so um, living with uncertainty becomes a real challenge. That does change over time. Uh, The farther out you are from your diagnosis, sometimes a little bit um, easier to deal with, but it does subtly and not so subtly change how we view our world, our relationships, the work we do, and how we're living. I use an analogy that seems to resonate with people when I see them clinically, and that is um, a theory called life in the foreground and uh, illness in the background. And the analogy I use is when you're newly diagnosed with cancer and you're you're in a car, the cancer will not let you look at the map and is not giving you GPS help, but it's telling you where to go. And you have no control over that in, in many ways. As cancer treatment ends, The cancer itself may get in the back seat of the car, but you can still see it in the rearview mirror. But as time goes on, it may get out of the car and it becomes in the background, just like a car in the background may be in your rearview mirror. And as time goes on, it may get farther and farther behind till you can barely make out what it is. But then when it's time to come in for another visit or your next mammogram if you have breast cancer or your next CEA if you have colon cancer or any number of things, it gets back in the front seat of the car. And which means that the awareness of uncertainty um, can come and go in its intensity. And that's something that takes a lot to learn how to live with and how to manage, um, especially around those times when it's back in the front seat. So I recommend to people, especially if they've been off treatment for a while and they're coming in for an appointment and that anxiety comes up again about the uncertainty, what is this visit going to show, what does this all mean for me, is just to be aware that this is a pattern and that that's not the time to make big decisions or to make major changes and to be kind to yourself knowing that um, this may be a greater worry for you than it would be maybe after a visit. And it's not something necessarily that family and friends really understand. It's something other cancer survivors may understand very well, but not necessarily family and friends thinking, oh, it's been years now, why are you worried, or what have you. And so, you know, trying to live with that is um, a challenge, but in many ways it's, it's also a gift in the sense that we are more aware and more sensitive about the uncertainty of our futures, and so we may choose to live our lives more richly in the present um, because you know that you're not guaranteed um, a future where many other people who've not faced this have the illusion that they may. So it's it's challenging, but one can learn to live with it and one can learn to make enrich your own life as a result of that as well. And then the last thing I was asked to address was about the issues about post-treatment um, effects or what happens after treatment's over. And it takes a while to recover from being on treatment, um, just like it recover, takes time to recover from surgery or any other major event in one's life. Um, and that takes time um, to, to recover one's energy, one's um, symptoms to resolve, etc. But um, for some people, this may feel very frustrating because it does take a while. Most of us want it to be better right away. Um, and most of us don't realize that as we get older, all of this is a little longer in in occurring. The other piece about that is some of these side effects or symptoms from treatment don't go away over time. They stay, or they may get better a little bit but not totally disappear. And that takes a, a bit to get used to and to learn how to live with or how to manage in a way to minimize the impact Um, Some examples of that may be numbness and tingling in your hands and fingers if you've had certain types of chemotherapy or fatigue that may not totally resolve. Um, I think it's very important to talk to your uh, doctors and nurses when treatment's ending and ask them what to to expect. 
um, when this may resolve, and then what happens if some of these things don't resolve and how to manage those. It's also very important to understand that at times, because of the treatment, you may be at higher risk for developing what we call late or long-term effects. And that, again, can be shared with you so that you know what to be looking for or share that with your primary care provider. And much of that information should be included in the survivorship care plan. And I know our next speaker is going to be talking in more detail about that, but that should at least give you a record of what to expect or what not to expect so that you know when to call or come back in for um, evaluation if something new happens that you weren't expecting. So I think, you know, I've lived it through oncology for decades and have seen um, our language change from a war on cancer back in the 70s to um, of being more of a competition in the 80s and 90s to now, many people use an analogy that cancer is a journey. And many survivors don't like that analogy. It's like, don't tell me I'm on a journey and don't tell me about a new normal because I want my old normal back and I want my old life back. But in a journey may be an apt analogy in that it's a process. You're moving along. Things change. Um, and that that experience of cancer is going to alter you for better and for worse over time. Um, and for many people, there are some silver linings that come out of that. Um, and, and it's about taking time to pause and ask yourself, how has this changed my life and in what ways? And I think that helps us live with the uncertainty a little bit better, whether you call yourself a cancer survivor or not. And I think at this point, you know, we might want to get into more detail about other aspects of survivorship care like care plans. So I'll turn this over to our next speaker. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Mayer. That was really wonderful introduction to the whole topic of setting the stage and also um, a lot of wonderful information, very comprehensive. So I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Lupe Palos, and Dr. Palos is a Clinical Protocol Administration Manager, Office of Cancer Survivorship, the University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. Um, and Dr. Palos will be addressing the importance of treatment summaries, quality of life concerns, including fear of recurrence, and finding your new normal. And um, it is really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Palos. Thank you, um, Carolyn, for the, the invitation to be on this call this afternoon. Dr. Mayer did an excellent job on setting the stage on the different topics that will be coming up. So in the next few moments, what I'm going to do is briefly address, again, the importance of treatment summaries, the quality of life and uh, concerns, and then finding the new normal. But as Dr. Mayer said, that's going to differ with each individual. So I'm going to begin by describing the purpose and the format of a cancer survivorship care plan. The basic framework of the survivorship care plan includes a treatment summary and a follow-up care plan. The treatment summary is an essential part of a strong follow-up plan, and I'll come back to this document in just a moment. Survivorship care plans were developed to standardize the care of long-term, or post-treatment is another term you may hear, cancer survivors. These plans can help a survivor or the patient in decision-making and in the self-management of their own follow-up care. Each plan is tailored to meet recommendations for a particular type of cancer and the individual needs of the patient. It really serves as a communication tool for the provider um, and to discuss follow-up care that can be personalized to each survivor's needs. And at the end of a visit, a survivor is to receive a printed copy of their survivorship care plan, and copies of the care plan can be made available through the, to the survivor's uh, community provider. Now, there are four core parts of a survivorship care plan, and that includes cancer surveillance and screening, and that's the detection and treatment of, of malignancy uh, recurrence or a new second ca uh, cancer. Risk reduction and cancer prevention includes lifestyle changes to prevent cancer and risk assessment. That's where you're going to hear a lot about um, energy balance, um, dietary modifications, exercising, all those good things. Late effects and side effects management, and that's looking at health maintenance and observation of your um, uh, physical function. And then and an important one is psychosocial functioning. And that, again, is supposed to look at 
services to maintain healthy relationships and to get back to a restored life. Now, the treatment summary became the focus of attention more so for survivorship care because of a new regulation passed in 2012 by the Commission on Cancer, which is a program of the American College of Surgeons. The COC released a standard that focused on the delivery of survivorship care plans, and it's called, just for some of you that might want to hear this, is Cancer Program Standards Ensuring Patient-Centered Care. Now, the basic elements of a treatment plan um, included, like, the details of the cancer diagnosis, the date, the type of cancer, the location, the stage, et cetera, the names and contact information of the healthcare providers and the treatment facilities, the types of treatments administered, whether it was chemotherapy, biotherapy, um, or whether it was uh, radiation and some of the details that go along with that. In short, what that is is a historical document. It tells the story of what, what happened with your treatment and with your cancer experience and the diagnosis. So, again, the standard stated that the survivorship care plan was to be given and discussed with the patient after the treatment after completion of their treatment, and then it was supposed to be recorded in the patient's medical record. There was also suggestions that copies should be kept in the patient's charts in the oncologist's office, the primary care provider's office, and in the patient's home. Now, treatment summaries and follow-up care plans are valuable tools which will promote and enhance communication between the different healthcare team members as well as the survivors. So and uh, because of the time limitation, I'm going to move on to the other points I was asked to address, and this were quality of life concerns, including fear of recurrence. So the new normal, what is the new normal? In general, once a patient's cancer treatment is over, it's usually a time to celebrate. Most often, patients and family members are ready to forget the experience and move on with life or return back to their normal routine. In some individuals, the cancer experience also helps them to begin a new start or have a, a, a new outlook on life. At times, a person may believe that they've changed and now they see themselves in a different way. Yet, at the same time, the individual may feel sad or worried, especially with worries about whether the cancer will return. This phase of a, can or this phase of a cancer patient's recovery is often referred to as the new normal, and the, there's a lot of discussion about um, and differences of opinion about what is a new normal and should that term be used, but um, that's what we were asked to address today. Usually, though, that new normal is accompanied with feelings of uncertainty, and you heard Dr. Mayer give a good uh, explanation of that and the, the impact of uncertainty. It's a a phrase that cancer patients use quite often, often across the, the process of the cancer uh, diagnosis and the experience, and that uncertainty continues even after treatment ends. So getting back to a, a new normal may also be accompanied with different physical and emotional effects. In fact, a term you may have heard your healthcare team ask you about is, what is the quality of your life, or let's talk about the quality of your life. Quality of life is a concept comprised of different parts of a person's world. A nurse scientist named Betty Farrell described four core elements of quality of life, which all may be addressed during your discussion with your healthcare team, or only one will be a primary focus. It's, you know, so, uh, but I'd like for you to know a little bit about them. One would be the physical well-being, and that refers to the control or relief of symptoms and the maintenance of physical and mental function and, of course, independence. Psychological well-being is another. It focuses on maintaining a sense of control in uh, the face of illness. Um, and at times that may be characterized by emotional distress. There's changes in life priorities and, again, the fear of the unknown. And there's a lot of positive life changes that go along with that. Resiliency is one of them. Hope is um, another. Social well-being is the effort to deal with the impact of cancer on the individuals, their roles, and relationships. It includes issues such as sexual, sexuality, marital issues, financial issues, or work-related issues. Spiritual well-being is one also that's an important um, domain of quality of life, and it's the ability to maintain hope and find meaning from the cancer experience. Now, each survivor's quality of life is going to differ depending on their individual characteristics, such as their age, their sex, their economic status, educational level, and other characteristics. Then it also will depend on clinical characteristics of the disease, such as the type of cancer that was diagnosed, the type of treatment received, the physical 
status of the individual and, of course, the health status of the individual. Research indicates that there are common physical and emotional effects reported by survivors who have completed their treatment. And again, these will vary depending on the treatment and the cancer type. For instance, common physical effects include fatigue or feeling of tiredness, pain, disturbed sleep, thinking and memory changes. And emotional effects often include anxiety, distress, feeling of loneliness or feeling alone, sometimes even anger and guilt. One of the most common emotional effects reported by survivors is the fear that the cancer will come back, and this feeling is called the fear of cancer recurrence. This worry may be intensified at certain times, such as maybe before a follow-up appointment or when other people that are in your circle are diagnosed with cancer, when you have symptoms that were similar to those that um, when you were first diagnosed, and even for some folks, passing by the hospital where they had treatment or visiting someone in the same um, hospital will um, bring that fear of recurrence up. Special occasions sometimes will bring that feeling up. And then anniversaries that you associate with your cancer process, the date you were diagnosed, the date you had the surgery, or even the date that you finished treatment. If you, as a cancer survivor or a loved one in your family, you see a loved one in your family is experienced these types of emotions, it's important to deal with those feelings. Don't just ignore them. Talk to your specialist about your risk of recurrence and learn more about your type of cancer. It's good to learn and recognize and manage the signs of stress and anxiety and manage them in a healthy way. And you could try things like yoga, mindful meditation, or just quiet time. Not all symptoms are a sign of cancer. They could also indicate other health problems, or they can just be normal changes in your body. Other actions you can take to deal with these types of feelings are, first, if you're living back in your community, and you may be receiving care from your primary care provider. So it's good just to let them know that you're a cancer survivor. Um, we did a, um, a little survey with some medical students and their uh, professors, and we found out that a lot of times that they didn't even ask their patient. They didn't even know that their patient that they were seeing in their primary care or family practice offices even had cancer. So it's good just to let your your primary care physician know that you have cancer and that um, you finished your treatment and all the things that go along with that. And so the things that go along with that is to be sure to get a, a copy of your treatment summary and your survivorship follow-up care plan. Give that copy to your primary care provider team. Go over the areas that you are concerned with or need further explanation about. A simple thing to ask is, like, who do you go to if you're concerned about new symptoms? Second, recognize that it's common for cancer survivors to have concerns about um, every ache and new symptom. For example, is that cold really a cold or does it have to do with your cancer? Another helpful thing is to keep a log or, note, or notes about your symptoms that concern you. You can share those notes with your health care team also. Fourth, and pretty important, if you have worries about your cancer coming back or you're feeling blue or distressed or unable to sleep, talk to your health care team. Let them know that you're worried or concerned, again, that your cancer may return or there's about other things that may be bothering you, like maybe even financial or work-related issues. And if your worries seem to be growing and interfering with your daily life, find a counselor to speak to. In fact, cancer care has well-trained social workers available through the telephone that you can call. As I mentioned earlier, the patient has a role in their care as a survivor. One of those responsibilities is to recognize and report any changes which may occur, both physical and emotional changes. These changes need to be brought up when you see your PCP or your oncologist, and PCP is primary care provider. These changes may be late effects from the t treatment or indicate that there are some changes that need to be followed up by um, the treating oncologist. It was interesting, I looked on the National Cancer Institute website, and they do talk about a new normal. And they mentioned a couple of points about what a new normal does and what it includes. It's making changes in the way you eat and what you do, discovering new or different sources of support, having um, scars on your body that weren't there before, not being able to do some of the things that you used to do, and then even developing new routines than what you had before. So remember, in closing, to take care of your mind and your body, find ways to relax, share your feelings with those you trust, find ways to distract yourself if you find yourself worrying about the recurrence. And again, it's important for our callers to remember to take one day at a time, be kind to yourself, you heard Dr. Mayer say that, 
or if you're a caregiver, be kind to your loved one. And remember, finishing treatments is like the end of a chapter in your life. Finding the new normal, though, is the beginning of a fresh chapter in your life. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Dr. Paulus. That was really um, quite extraordinary, and um, thank you so much for um, bringing your thoughts and wisdom and expertise into talking about this very important subject that I think um, many people on the call um, certainly struggle with, so thank you so much. Um, And I know the questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is former founding director, Cancer Support Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, and author and researcher in oncology. Um, And Dr. Fleischman is going to be addressing new trends and follow-up care with your oncologist and primary care doctor, the benefits of communicating with your healthcare team, and key questions to ask your healthcare team about cancer survivorship. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and um, I'm I'm, uh, bowled over by the amount of information that Dr. Mayer and Dr. Paulos already gave, and I'm going to give you some more. (laughs) Uh, I know there's a lot here to do, Um, and I I think one of the things we hear from patients all the time is how much work being a survivor is. Um, The uh, work uh, burden should really be on the providers, but We know these days that um, because of the way medicine is going in general, a lot of the responsibility falls to the patient and the family. Um, During and after treatment, we could probably have really great discussions about is that the best way to do things and is that fair, but it is what it is now, and we need to help work with the system, make it better, but make sure that patients along the way uh, get the right care. So as you've heard before, um, one of the most effective things that uh, a patient and a family does when they finish treatment is know exactly what kind of cancer they had, what kind of treatment that they had, and pass that information on to the people who will be um, giving them care afterwards. Really important. The primary care provider should not have to guess based upon a medication list Um, what kind of cancer someone had and what kind of treatment that they had. It does, though, though get very complicated because many of us uh, seek treatment for cancer far away from home uh, or even in our own city but in a network or in a a health system that that our primary care provider may or may not be part of. And if he or she is not a part of that, they may not have access to the electronic record, <clears throat> excuse me, which is the way that m- most of us um, communicate with each other these days, excuse me. <clears throat> so um, I hear many patients say, well, I'm going to back to the hospital where I had my gallbladder out or I had my um, uh, heart problems treated because they'll have all my records. Well, they do, but they may not be automatically accessible to the the different oncology subspecialists or the primary care doctor who's seeing you if they have um, privileges at that hospital but are in the community. Many places this has been taken care of for us, but it's not universal, especially as many of the smaller hospitals are moving from paper records to electronic records. So the work here is really making sure that there is good communication between the surgical oncologist, the medical oncologist, the radiation oncologist, and the primary care doctor. Um, It gets a little more complicated because during our treatment we often see subspecialists. For example, we've had heart problems before receiving a kind of chemotherapy, adriamycin or donorubicin, a cardiologist is generally involved in monitoring uh, what happens during our treatment and making sure that it doesn't make whatever pre-existing heart problem there was worse. The same thing can happen for, let's say, a patient who has diabetes and has nerve ending problems um, and is seeing a, a neurologist who is experienced in treating nerve ending problems and diabetes. That can sometimes be made worse by some of the chemotherapy we give. If a patient has lupus, getting radiation therapy can be a problem. So it adds um, yet another group of specialists to this mix. And then, um, as 
uh, cancer treatment becomes <clears throat> more in the ambulatory realm and where you don't get admitted to the hospital. Um, and there are more and more, um, more, there's more and more research about how to best manage and treat the problems that come after cancer. There are often specialists in supportive care or symptom management, especially at our larger cancer treatment facilities, who, who co-manage along with the oncologists of all the different types and the specialists and the primary care doctor. So having all that information in one place is um, important. But if that is or is not the case for you, one of the best things to do is to, as you heard before, give the survivorship care plan and the treatment summary to all the doctors who you see. Bring a copy of it with you. Uh, please bring a list of all the medications you have because sometimes we can work backwards from the list of medications and find out um, a lot about the treatment that you've had if that documentation is um, not available. So communication between all these different groups of providers should not be our burden as patients and families, but it is. And uh, until the system responds to that with perhaps a universal medical record that all, who each brand communicates with each other, then we need to take the lead and make sure that our care is not compromised along the way. So as you heard, um, the important thing that everybody needs to know is what kind of cancer I have, you know, what treatment that I have, what needs to be done as far as follow-up testing. Um, that's really important based upon uh, any other health problems that you've had before the cancer treatment, any health problems that developed during the cancer treatment. Um, and there are um, some guidelines for many of these uh, follow-up routines in that are a part of the, the regular treatment guidelines. Some of them are produced by a um, group called the NCCN, National Comprehensive Cancer Network. Um, but it's important that that be discussed with all the different doctors that you see. Uh, there are uh, patient-friendly um, versions of many of the guidelines that are real English that most people can um, understand in addition to the um, physician and provider guidelines that list all of the different studies that went in to determine what should and shouldn't be done. The part of the uh, survivorship care that often gets sort of short shrift is what we need to do for ourselves and for our families. Um, there are pretty much universal um, lifestyle uh, improvements that can be made as a result of being a cancer survivor that will help you be a survivor for a longer period of time with a better quality of life. These are sometimes boring. We sometimes roll our eyes when we hear them, but they are really, really important. That maintaining a, a proper weight, an ideal body weight, it's mostly um, made of muscle tissue rather than fat and being on a good diet, having a really good diet that's tailored to your special needs, but in general, lots of fruits and vegetables from plant-based uh, sources, uh, lots of protein from a variety of sources, not necessarily red meat, uh, the kinds of and, and lots of fiber in the diet. Those kinds of things are universal between um, what we suggest after people have heart problems, what we suggest after people have cancer, or even just to stay healthy. So um, the our own health maintenance, which includes diet and activity, are essential. That often gets to the bottom of the list. Even further down the list uh, sometimes relates to the kinds of things we do for recreation, which can include the use of tobacco products, the use of alcohol, the use of other drugs. Um, many of these are problematic in general and become extremely problematic after cancer. So um, the, the, the treatment summaries really need to help direct and inform you know, what's been done, what needs to be done, and what each patient and family need to do in order to help be cancer-free as possible. Um, it's a complicated issue, but the best thing to do is to carry paper back and forth between your doctors until you know from the and, and advanced practice nurses and all the other people who provide care as, until you're assured that everything is in one um, computer system. 
uh, that's happening, but it's not universal, and now we need to be the messengers to make sure that the information gets back and forth between our own, for our own care. I, I bet there'll be a number of questions about this. I'm going to stop now so we have enough time for our question and answer period. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Fleischman. That was really um, wonderful and um, very informative, and I think um, that um, that definitely will prompt questions, so thank you. Um, we're going to take questions in just a few minutes. I'm going to ask you all to kind of get ready to um, to form your questions or you have them to ready, um, and I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care, and then we're going to take questions from all of you. Um, so um, cancer care is a national uh, organization, nonprofit. Um, all of our services are free. Our staff are primarily oncology social workers, and they provide a variety of services, including both financial and practical assistance, as well as uh, a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers about your concerns. Um, we also offer um, online and telephone support groups, and um, the, we have many online support groups. I think we have about 138 online support groups. They're all facilitated by an oncology social worker, and they are um, for all different ages, different types of cancer, survivorship issues for young adults, middle-aged adults, older adults, so at different, um, different ages in the, in the lifespan in terms of uh, being choosing a, which group you would like to attend, um, and groups for caregivers and groups for survivors as well, and for other types of people who are living with cancer directly and feel themselves connected um, as connected to their particular diagnosis. Um, you can access all that information by going to our website, cancercare.org, or you can call us at 800-813-4673. Um, and um, so uh, we also have these workshops and, of course, um, many publications and fact sheets um, that you can access. And all of these programs, so the example today's program, but all the programs that we do as workshops, they're all accessible um, to all of you um, after the facts. So you can listen to them on the telephone or as a podcast. So that would be your um, your choice, but depending on your technology um, access and also your technology at the moment that you want to listen to them. Um, and again, we welcome your listening to them. They um, usually this particular program will be up probably for a couple of years, just because it's it's timeless to some extent. Some of the information here is timeless. If anything changes, then we'll have another one, which would have different information. But um, this one is um, is one that many of you will want to refer to and and don't hesitate to listen to it again. Um, so now we have time for questions, and I'm going to ask Norma to explain to our participants how to cure for questions, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Uh, Norma? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one, on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Emil F. Your line is open. Hi. Uh, in a lot of cases, doctors generally deal with the cancer as a physical problem. Why don't they tell you about how to deal with the after effects of diagnosis and treatment socially and emotionally? They don't. They aren't trained to do that. They just deal with the physical. Most of the time, the patient has to fend for themselves, trial and error techniques, or go to other places like cancer care. If it wasn't for cancer care, I probably wouldn't be here today because they have given me so much support. But there should be training with the doctors in dealing with these aspects in addition to just dealing with the physical. Oh, thank you, Emil, for that uh, comment. And good to have you on the call. But um, I'm going to ask the Dr. Mayer if you could address that to begin with. Sure. I, in, the, in the early days of oncology, I think you could look to your doctor to take care of the whole person. Um, the care was a lot simpler and, and a lot less complex to deliver. I think that we have moved to really delivering cancer care as part of a team because no one person can really do all of that for somebody. And I think that um, that's where the role of the nurse and the social worker and the programs and, and offerings at a, at a practice or a cancer program or hospital um, need to come in to help round that out. It is very difficult to do all of that as one person. Um, but one of the things that can happen is certainly the physician can direct the patient or the patient can ask about other kinds of programs 
um, or support services that can be offered um, during treatment and afterwards, especially afterwards um, when there's less contact on a regular basis. Excellent. And uh, Dr. Palos, do you want to comment as well? Well, I, I think that's a, an excellent um, point. And part of it is, is that oncology is so complex and changes so much that, um, you know, you either – I think an oncologist has so much time in their life, and so they can focus on what is very applicable in their day-to-day routine. And then, as um, Dr. Mayer brought up, then – kind of share the responsibility with the other healthcare team members. And, and that's why you're seeing more and more people when you go into the whole experience of a cancer diagnosis. It's not just one individual that you're seeing any longer. Um, and so it's a whole team. So it's good It's good because then you can get different opinions, different perspectives on some of that. And I, I would just like to encourage everyone that when you do meet a new member of the team, ask for their card uh, because after a while the team may get so big you may not remember everyone. But get a card and then write on the back of that what that person may, and you may be, you know, a couple of notes. We talked about X, Y, Z. And that way then if something comes up later on, you'll be able to have that. But it is a it is a healthcare team approach now, uh, and that's better for um our patients and the care that they get, it helps the caregivers because then they know that they have a team that's supporting them, um, and then it helps the healthcare provider knowing that they don't have to be the one that's only responsible for the care of an individual. Awesome. Thank you. And Dr. Fleischman, do you wish to add? As well? Sure. It's an excellent comment, and I believe we're trying to be as objective and unbiased as possible, but I will reveal an important bias of my own which is that if you are treated at one of the larger centers, an accredited center or one of the uh, larger cancer centers that are around the country, these services are available um, to you right at that center. And one of the things that comes with accreditation is that someone has to ask you how are you uh, in all ways um, and be able to respond to that. Um, that's can't always happen in a, um, a private practice in the community, which is why cancer care and the other agencies like that are so important. Um, but uh, my bias to be tr- being treated at a place that has a lot of these specialized services there shows, and I, I can't help that. So we definitely want people to, to take advantage of those services in their settings as well as many, many uh, organizations out there that can assist you. Um, and there are many. And actually, um, at the end of the program, you will get an evaluation form. But the evaluation form isn't just an evaluation form. It also includes any resource that we've mentioned throughout the program, and even the resources that were on the brochures or on our website about the, all the groups that have such wonderful information for you all. So I think that's another another thing, but it is um, certainly um, your healthcare team often now does consist of so many people. Actually, Dr. Fleischman, do you want to say all the members who are these people on the healthcare team? Because it it's a large team now of people that people can access. That's tough. I don't want to leave anybody out. <laughs> well, um, often the subspecialty physicians, the uh, different medical surgical radiation oncologists, sometimes the primary care provider or the supportive care doctor who is taking care of all the other details along the way. We have um, nurses who are advanced practice nurses who in many uh, states are, are licensed to be able to provide care on their own and uh, sometimes called mid-level providers, but most of the time are really, really experienced and know exactly what to do um, and have a wide variety of skills and information at their fingertips. Very, very key to a good cancer treatment. There are also physicians' assistants. Pretty much everything that I said about the nurse practitioners could be the same. Um, often oncology social workers at the cancer centers that are on the outpatient areas as well as the inpatient areas. There are oncology nutritionists or dietitians to help with the dietary, uh, the important role that food plays. There are rehabilitation specialists, uh, physical therapists, occupational therapists. Um, who understand about the specifics about that kind of cancer, what is what needs to be done beforehand, during treatment, and after. 
um, every cancer center has at least one pharmacist that is extremely knowledgeable about chemotherapy and the variety of uh, interactions between um, over-the-counter drugs and uh, foods and all the other medicines we take for a variety of other conditions. There are uh, medical assistants who help you in and out of the office, take your vital signs, make sure everything is ready for the visit, um, uh, radiation technicians who actually provide the radiation because, remember, the radiation oncologist is not in the room um, or, or at the controls of the machine that you're there. They oversee things, but there are highly trained technicians who uh, go to school for quite a long time to learn how to give radiation safely. Um, trying to think of who else. There are many other specialists that you never meet, pathologists, radiologists who look at x-rays, who look at your biopsy slides. Um, I really don't want to leave anybody out. Information specialists. Uh, anybody, anybody can think of someone I've left out. <laughs> anyone think of anyone? Okay. I think you've done a very comprehensive job. Patient navigators, I think you probably said Patient them. Navigators, yeah. Often yeah. from those disciplines, yeah. And so and, and if there's and there are many others, the pharmacists, the, all the people who really are there that can help you in many different ways. So um um do take advantage of all of them and also all the other resources that um are there for you as well. Um so um and um we have another question from one of our online participants. Um, so why don't oncologists and small practices automatically give care plan? I advise my members to ask. Um, Dr. Mayer, do you want to comment on that? Yes, certainly. Um, care plans um, are a wonderful idea, but they're very difficult to do. And so... Uh, what might happen is that they may not have a mechanism to get them done routinely, but I would expect that if you go in and asking for one, you may be able to get one that way. But on the other hand, the other piece of that is you can do one yourself. If you get some details about your diagnosis and actual treatment, like the names of the drugs that were treated or what have you, and you can go online to a couple of different websites and create your own. One of them is called Journey Forward. And the other one is, um, I think it's OncoLink um, oh, yes. or OncoLife. Yes. Let yes. me just, OncoLife, uh, yeah, OncoLife.OncoLink.org, and you can go on and create your own there. Um, and so that's one way of doing that. Excellent. Um, any other comments about this question? Okay. Um, and um, we have another question from one of our online participants. I have been informed by colleagues. I'm going to ask um, actually Dr. Fleischman if you could address this and Dr. Mayer. I've been informed by colleagues that new survivorship standards for treatment survivorship plans may be forthcoming around September of this year. Is this correct? And it's a, a healthcare professional asking the question. This, uh, well, this is, uh, there, there are. There are certain specific things that need to be done after that are enumerated after the big after the, the the common cancers that are part of the regular treatment guidelines. The kinds of things I mentioned before: what kind of follow-up needs to be done, what blood tests need to be done, when uh, MRIs or other CAT scans or X-rays or PET scans or whatever needs to be needs to be done. Do biopsies need to be done afterwards? Uh, a whole variety of things that I, I can't possibly list now. The, I think what you heard about is that the, um, the requirement that accredited cancer centers must give the survivorship care plan to um, groups of their patients may be changing. Um, however, um, the um, accreditation standards, which have not yet been fully finalized or out for public comment and up until I think two weeks ago, actually uh, insist that any accredited center has a survivorship program rather than focusing on the piece of paper. Uh, as we've all said today, the, having the elements of, that, the, of those um, 
components as part of your care is essential. Um, and that's what the future may be, but the information has been put out for public comment for professionals and patients, and we don't know what the final format will be. And Dr. Mayer, did you also want to comment as well? Thank you, Steve. Thanks. Yes. Um, I just think that um, this is an important component of care. I think that the difficulties in implementing this process um, is, um, is, is real, but I think asking for one will be important. I think in many ways we should be doing more than just a survivorship care plan. We should be giving you this kind of information at the time of diagnosis and treatment as well. Um, I think that anytime we see a provider, we should be asking for something in writing because our memories of what's said during a visit are very small um, and short, and, and it's difficult to remember all those. So I think what we can do is encourage people to ask for them. The more people who ask for them, the more we'll be doing them on a routine basis. So um, even though the standard doesn't require it, it is still listing. Um, I think that that's important to do is to keep asking. We may be able to change practice from the bottom up instead of from the top down. Excellent. So we want you to keep asking those questions. Dr. Palos, do you want to add anything as well? I, I think um, Dr. Mayer and Dr. Fleischman did an excellent job of explaining that we also need to be self-advocates in some ways you know, to ask for these survivorship care plans. Thank you. Um, and um, here we have a question. Um, for um, actually for everyone, because it's it's the question is um, from one of our online participants: Do I talk to my cancer team or my primary care doctor post treatment? So, so this is a question that I think people often struggle with. I know you addressed it in part, Dr. Fleischman. Do you want to start with this because it, it's sure uh, on a practical basis, uh, your insurance. Uh, may actually determine how many visits you can make to your medical, surgical, or radiation oncologist. Um, and it may direct you back to your primary care doctor first, who uh, would determine if you need more visits uh, with the, any one of the oncology subspecialists. Other insurance plans, which are less restrictive, allow you to make reimbursed visits for as long as there's medical necessity to your oncology subspecialist. Um, if, if, during treatment, um, often, the, as we say, the captain of the ship changes um, between surgery, uh, chemotherapy, and radiation oncology, since they, sometimes they are given at the same time, but most of the time they're, they're given sequentially. Um, so uh, it's the treatment that you're getting where the first question should go. Um, but afterwards, if your oncologist sees you, let's say, once a year or once every other year in follow-up, um, most of the questions should go to the primary care doctor who can then refer you back or just get information from the oncologist's office so that there's less wear and tear on you um, to find out the information you need. Okay, thank you. And Dr. Mayer, do you want to comment on yes, that as well? Yes, I, I certainly would. I think that during the first few years after treatment ends, if treatment ends, um, we're speaking about that group of people because if treatment hasn't ended, you'll continue to see your oncologist. But as time goes on, you'll see the oncologist less and less until you get out to a once-a-year visit. At some point, it doesn't um, add value to your care to continue to see the oncologist over years. And the primary care provider certainly can deliver your health care with you always being able to come back to the oncologist should you develop a problem. Um, so that after the first five and certainly ten years at the max, if you're doing well and you've been off treatment for a number of years, there's no real value in coming back to see the oncologist other than the emotional reassurance and maintaining the relationship, but you'll always be able to get back to see them should you really develop a problem. I say that because one is um, the, the, you want to make sure you're getting good, well-rounded health care for 
um, a person of your age, whether it's other cancer screening or vaccinations or other kinds of health promotion things. And over time, it becomes less and less about cancer care and more about your general care. And the other is because we've been so successful with our cancer treatments, there are more and more survivors. We are going to be having a problem seeing everybody who wants to be seen, especially over long-term time periods. And so it's going to become necessary at some point to see people only up to a certain point and not beyond so that we have room to see new patients who need to be treated. And so there's a, a mixed reason for thinking about transferring your care totally to your primary care provider over time as you feel comfortable and, and continue to do well after treatment, if that makes sense. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Powers, do you want to add as well? Yes, um, I think that's a, the latter point that Dr. Mayer just made about, you know, there's only so much um, supplies of oncologists and supplies of clinic space in um, hospitals and in uh, cancer centers. And so as the number of survivors continue to grow, it's going to be hard to take care of both groups. So there's even been a move, for example, here at our institution uh, where we have survivorship clinics. And so what we, specific to each cancer site, um, so in some other areas they may have survivorship clinics that take care of all the different cancer types. But what that does then is that allows the, the treating oncologist to be able to take care of patients who are newly diagnosed or, uh, or in active treatment. And then when they're uh, referred over to the survivorship clinics, that's where they get someone who specifically knows all those domains that I mentioned earlier. They address all of those, and they're able to take care of the whole uh, health care of, of the survivor rather than only focusing on surveillance or just on one component. The other thing about um, going to your primary care provider, though, there's an advantage in that also because uh, many of our survivors don't just have a diagnosis of cancer or had a diagnosis of cancer. There can be arthritis. There can be hypertension. There can be diabetes. And the primary care provider is very well versed in, in the care of these chronic diseases. So um, you get, again, a, a more comprehensive approach in care when you're going to the primary care provider. Um, and I would just, again, recommend that the communication piece is very important. So to let your oncologist know that uh, maybe your preference is to go back to your community and have your primary care provider take care of you. But communicate that to your oncologist and then communicate to your primary care provider who your oncologist is and that you know, they can communicate with them if, if needed. So all three groups, the providers, uh, whether they're an oncologist or a primary care provider and the patient and their family are all involved in taking care of the individual from the holistic, I, that's the term, that's maybe an old term, but from the, a comprehensive care approach to that individual. Um, and this question, I believe we may have asked it, but I'm going to ask it again anyway. Why don't oncologists in small practices automatically give care plan? I advise my members to ask. Um, again, from a healthcare professional. Um, um, so, um, Dr. Palos, do you want to start with that one? Um, I, I, I would. I, I believe again, it's um, just an idea. I think it was addressed earlier, but if I remember correctly, what it is too is that it, an oncologist has so many in, in a small practice only has so much time and perhaps so many patients. So it, it's hard for them to have the the time. Maybe the staff isn't there to help them develop the care plan. Some practices have to uh, have one individual to just develop the survivorship care plan because if they don't have an electronic system, what they're going to have to do is go back to a medical chart, the old-fashioned ones that are all written up, and pull all that information from the medical chart. And that takes somebody to do that, and that takes time for somebody to do that. So, again, the survivorship care plan, in theory, is a wonderful document to have. Um, but when we're trying to really be practical about it in a small practice, uh, it's really depends a lot on the availability of resources that are there. But I really like what Dr. Mayer said, it's that to encourage 
to ask your providers about the survivorship care plan. And then the second point she made about developing your own survivorship care plan and jotting down all the information, that's also an excellent way to, to keep track of, this, of your treatment summary as well as your care plan. And if you go online and look at some of these care plans that are available, it'll give you an idea of what type of information goes in there. And I'm sure many of you have that information in different areas. It's just a matter of pulling it all together if you're going to do your own. And if not, then you know, pull some, you know, take your records and take them to your primary care provider. So that that's one way to be able to address that. That's an excellent point that the records be sent to the that there be some dialogue between the primary care doctor and the oncologist while you're undergoing. Some, that they get the records, they can almost request them from the oncologist with your permission. Um, does that facilitate the transfer? Yeah, I have an additional uh, suggestion. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, in in our very un- unusual healthcare system where everybody developed their practices, each specialty developed practices on their own. It is a standard procedure for radiation oncologists to write up a treatment summary after a patient is finished because it's very unusual for them to see, uh, to see patients for many, many years. That does happen, but it's unusual. So the treatment summary is something that is routinely done in radiation oncology practices and can be or should be sent to the medical oncologist or the surgical oncologist that thought that radiation would be a good idea. Um, There's a lot of technical information in there that a patient or family who's untrained may not be able to understand, but that can be passed on to the primary care doctor (laughs) who who understands a little bit or a lot more about the ins and outs of radiation uh, treatment and actually that can serve as at least part of the foundation of the information. This is Deb. I also want to add that there are lots of other resources, um, some very good websites that have a lot of survivorship information on them that's independent of your care plan, but you can go to cancer.org, which is the American Cancer Society, certainly Cancer Care's website, the National Cancer Institute, cancer.gov, and they have a, a lot of information about if you just put in the words cancer survivor, you will get to some of the resources that have been developed for that purpose by types of cancer. Um, so you can still avail yourself to some of the information that exists for people who are um, finished with treatment. And there are other, there are other um, books and PDFs that can be downloaded from those things, like the National Cancer Institute has a wonderful book called Facing Forward, um, that talks about when treatment ends. And so there are other resources that are more generic. Um, the American Society of Clinical Oncologists have a very good um, booklet called Cancer Survivorship that actually has the template for the care plan in it that you can take with you for a visit and ask somebody to help you fill it out if they haven't done that already. So there's other resources that you can use to help you get to this information as well. That is an excellent point, Dr. Mayer. That is really, and those are wonderful booklets, the two that you've just mentioned. They'll be in the evaluation, all the resources we've mentioned. But I would recommend they're free and they're accessible, and they really will help um, all of you tremendously. Um, I want to thank our speakers. Um, you've been phenomenal. I have to say this has been an amazing program today. Um, I know we could go on a bit longer. We have more questions and things like that. So I um, I do want to, we did say this would take a program would last about an hour, and it's about an hour. So um, I do want to remind all of you that, um, that of course, those of you who have asked a question or for those of you who still have questions, um, I would want you to go back to your treating healthcare team. Of course, they're the best ones to tell you. Um, whether it be your whether you're currently still seeing your oncologist or seeing your primary care doctor or, or all the different specialties that we may have mentioned, um, and bring those the information you've learned or the questions you may still have. But also um, for those of you actually who um, actually didn't get to ask a question and still have questions, your healthcare team is always the best place to start. But then we do want you to contact other places as well. The National Cancer Institute is a wonderful resource for all of you. They have an 800 number. I'm going to state it, but to some extent, you'll all be able to also get it from. Um, we'll give it, and we'll include it in the evaluation forms that you'll get at the end. Um, but it's 800 
422-6237, and also has a wonderful website, www.cancer.gov. And what's wonderful is there's a live chat feature where you can um, post your question to one of their information specialists, and they will respond to you, so in real time. It's a wonderful resource, um, and we will include that as well in your materials that you get with the evaluation. Um, also, um, for those of you who wish to pursue further assistance from Cancer Care, you can contact us um, at 800-813-4673 or our website, cancercare.org. Um, but most importantly, as we conclude the program today, um, we would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with issues of cancer survivorship. We want you to know, know that there are lots of resources out there for you. Um, you'll be getting a whole list of resources. And in this instance, calling more places than, than, than one, especially since they're all free, um, could be very helpful to you. And then you'll stop at some point when you have enough information um, for the time being, but you can tuck it away and always have it at your fingertips. Um, so I do want to thank you all for your participation today. Um, you've been an amazing group, great questions. Um, so our speakers were terrific, but those who ask questions, those are also added to the call tremendously. So I want to wish you all a very fine day, and thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day. <laughs>